Hello there and welcome to this week's episode of Ness and Dorma. This is episode five of our six-part series on the European Championships of 1988. I'm Martin Ramsey, your host this week, and I am joined by Rob Smythe, as always. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, Rob. Um, for the first time on this relaunch, but a favourite of Ness and Dorma, it's Mike Gibbons. How are we, Mike? Very good, thanks. Good to be back. And our special guest, whose book we have pillaged and plundered <laughs> and mined for brilliant quotes uh, and information and just a great overview of this tournament is Jonathan O'Brien. Your author's name, we might slip into more informal um, names later on, Jonathan, but welcome. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I'm very well. We're at the semi-final stage now, gentlemen. Um Two sides that may well be looking a wee bit further ahead than just this tournament and two sides who perhaps see this as their chance to strike and make history. We will start talking about history um, with the first semi-final, which um, was West Germany, the hosts, of course, uh, against the Netherlands there. Um, well, there's a story there both on the pitch and off, I suppose, that we can get into throughout the, the, the episode. But Rob, do you want to give us the teams and maybe a wee bit of background into some of the, uh, I don't know, mind games, um, bits and pieces that, that, that Franz Beckenbauer was playing with that West German team beforehand? Not quite Ronaldo in 1998, but um, <laughs> the, 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 there was a bit of a, a carry on. Yeah, this is very strange. So Pierre Litbarski, who played every game was on the team sheet. Then they announced that Frank Mill was going to play instead of him uh, because Lebowski had a stomach bug. Turned out that was bullshit and Lebowski wasn't particularly impressed at all. He was still on the bench. I mean, I don't know if anyone else knows anything about it, but to me this strikes me really weird because Mill was essentially a goal scorer, but he's playing in midfield, really. Um, so, But I'll just go through the teams quickly. Um, so they kept Andy Bremer right back. Rolf, who had been man-marking people, wasn't this time. He was sort of playing as a left wing-back. Barofka was the man who marked Tullet, Kola Mark Van Basten. So it was Immel, Herget the sweeper. The four in front of him were Bremer, Kola, Barofka, Rolf, then Tom Mateusen. I think Mill was playing midfield as hard. I mean, he was essentially kind of left left centre, then Volon Klinsman. Um, Netherlands was exactly the same. Uh, Van Broeklem, back four, Van Arlekum and Rijka Van Tegelen. Midfield, Vandenberg, Valters, Arnold Buren, Erwin Koeman. Hullet kind of roaming and Van Basten. Yeah. Same team I think they'd had since the England game, I think. But yeah, they were very relaxed. I mean, they went they went to Whitney Houston concert the night before, apparently, which is kind of interesting because we know all about Dutch infighting. It feels like that was kind of Meikle's, one of his biggest team, one of them. It was just a really harmonious camp, you know, and that kind of transmitted the same team, team, on we go. Yeah, we'll come back to that later on. Um, Jonathan and Mike, you're, you've just joined us, of course, on, on this series. This is a hard question because we know what happens. But I'll ask you, Jonathan, first, given you, you've written the, the, the book, well, part of your book on it. Who are favourites at this moment in time getting into these, these semi-finals? I, I was quite surprised by not how bad the Netherlands were. They were obviously explosive against England, but they, they had a fair share of luck. They were quite stodgy uh, in, in parts as well, whereas West Germany just feel especially driven by Matthias is now turning into this this really powerful um, ball-carrying midfielder, driving and pinning teams back in. They, they look they look the part going into this semi-final from, from the, the, the group games that we've just watched. 
Yeah, um, they'd started off very ponderously against Italy. Uh, then they'd beaten Denmark, who weren't much of a test. That, but they really found some form against Spain. They, they could have won it by a lot more than 2-0. Uh, Mateus, as you mentioned, was excellent in that game. Fuller had scored a couple of goals after a long uh, a long drought. Uh, he'd hardly scored since, I think, September 87 or something like that. So about 10 or 11 internationals without a goal. He was on the verge of being dropped. But the momentum was definitely with Germany going in. And of course, it's a home, it was a home game too. Although, um, as things turned out, the Dutch fans got so many of the tickets that Frank Mills said uh, afterwards, it would have been nice if we'd played the match in Germany. Mm. Uh, but but yeah, the Dutch hadn't looked good against us at all, Ireland, that is. And uh, we're very, very lucky to get past this. I won't dwell on that because I'll sound bitter. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, definitely the, the, the West Germans would have been the favourites going in for sure. Mike, we will discuss this over the course of, of the next couple of episodes, but the Dutch are going to make history, but they're still not quite the, the finished article at this minute in time. Is is that been too harsh? Uh, no, I think that's fair. I mean, if you if you look back at um, how they played in the group stages, um, you know, even in the England game, they rode their luck a, a little bit before they uh, before they went ahead and, they, and then got back in front. Later in that game, uh, yeah, the Ireland game, as Jonathan's mentioned, yeah, they lost their opening game, so they didn't look quite as as on it as West Germany did. I wouldn't say, and and you you would back West Germany in this situation. I think they'd been to in the eight previous tournaments before this, they'd been to six of the finals. I mean, it's just you just so used to seeing them just go through at this stage, you know, whoever they're they're facing. But um, yeah, I think. Uh, the Dutch, they certainly got it together this night. I mean, mm. we'll come on to their motivations for doing that, mm. um, <laughs> you know, on, on the pitch and off it, I think. But, um, yeah, going into it, I think, you know, West West Germany would have been the favourites. But... Well, let's look at those motivations just before we get into the, the action mm. then, because we're so used to now with so much coverage for hours and hours and hours before a big game, having the whole narrative and the whole history kind of played out and played to death. It's touched upon. I don't think it's, it's got the, the, the whole treatment uh, as, as it would now, but we have the 74 um, final and Renus Beekle's obviously um, looking for redemption um, purely on, on a football footballing basis. Um, and Simon Cooper's very good on, on the... The war thing, um, almost saying that it took the Dutch a generation to digest what happened. There wasn't this this rivalry in the the fifties, sixties. There wasn't a rivalry at all because Holland or, or the Netherlands were, were were nowhere near it. And West Germany, as it was, was becoming a bit of a kind of powerhouse. Um, but it's starting to come out in the nineteen eighties. It's starting to come out now. The matches played in Hamburg, um, which is um, or was pivotal in, in 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 that war story as well. There's just a, so many ingredients um, to this this particular game that that that, that set it all up. I, Rob first, Brian Moore mentions it. I think at the start, but it, it, it's nowhere near the 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 essays that we would get in advance of. of <laughs> and thank God for that. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Even the broadsheet previews are more about much more about seventy four than the mm. war um and it's quite interesting it clearly meant a lot more to some dutch players than others like van broeklin and ronald koeman seem particularly fired up van broeklin says to me yeah. i hope you fucking die when he crashes into him um whereas van basten says in his book that he 
thought it was irrelevant. And I don't think he's just saying that. He he said basically, previous like the previous generation didn't really nothing to do with him. Um, certainly the war. I don't know, and probably seventy four as well. What would Van Basten have been in like ten years old or something? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in the English press in particular, it's a, it's a lot more about the fight in seventy four, and and I suppose the teams, while not quite as extreme in their reputations as they were then, kind of are still playing the same roles, aren't they? The British press have been in love with the Netherlands, or the English press rather, have been in love with the Netherlands throughout the tournament, and West Germany. It's just all the cliches that we know about them, kind of improving during the tournament and another thing a smaller thing is that um netherlands hadn't beaten them for i think since 1956 in 10 games so that's another factor like everything pointed to um yeah west germany being their bogey team and i know and it's and most of the players talk about this being the final and um their behavior subsequently kind of supports that i think van basten was definitely a dissenting voice but i think for a hell of a lot of them they could have won this game and died happy basically yeah, we'll get into some of the flashpoints. Yeah, indeed, we'll get into some of the the flashpoints in a minute, Jonathan. But the pace from the start is frantic, and it looks like well, it looks like an old firm game. I mean, it looks like a derby. <laughs> it looks like there's there's needle there. That there's clearly a couple of incidents, especially when forwards get tangled with goalkeepers, where this is not a normal semi final. So whether it's sporting or otherwise, there is a lot at stake here. The other semi-final we're going to talk about in a minute just clearly lacks completely. Yeah, um, Rob has already mentioned the episode with Van Brooklyn and Frank Mill where he crashes into him and tells him he hopes he fucking dies. Uh, there was there was an edge to the game all the way, but I don't think it was that great a game. I mean, maybe because of that edge, it couldn't be a great football match. There weren't that many chances from, from what I remember watching it. Um, I think maybe the weight of the occasion, obviously, was playing on both teams' minds. And as a result, they were more interested in uh, laying down a marker early on rather than trying to play a bit of football. It's it's certainly like it's it, it keeps getting written up as a kind of a Euro classic. I, I don't think it was at all. I think it was one of the I hesitate to say poor, but because there was obviously a lot going on. But in terms of great football, I don't think it was anything to write home about. There was plenty of stuff happening, just not particularly good stuff, if you know what I mean. Rob. Can I ask a really quick, quick, quick question? What is the um, Dutch team's problem with Rudy Voller? <laughs> I really don't understand <laughs> it. Like, he, he gets yeah. his phlegm shower to and in this one, Koeman's all over him, isn't he? I think you said in your book Koeman could have been sent off. For, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't know if you it's guys bizarre. have seen the official movie of Euro 88, Tor. It's, it's yes, basically, it's... for those who haven't seen it, it's, it's, uh, it's basically like a movie filmed down a pitch side with uh, Super 8 cameras. It's an hour long. It's, it's a wonderful viewing experience. And it captures what the TV cameras showing the match, uh, broadcasting the match rather, didn't catch, which was a scene where Fuller gets fouled. He's sitting on the grass. Two of them come up behind him. I think it's Kuman and Gerald Vandenberg. They come up behind him and they start pulling his hair and flicking him on the neck. And he throws out an arm angrily to hoosh them away. And then Kuman reaches down again. And the, the referee, who I have to say was pretty lamentable on the night, a Romanian referee called Johan Igna, um, He's standing there watching all this and he's just letting it go. And that would not happen today, not just because of VAR, but just referees are just that bit less laissez-faire than they were in 1988. Igna was also the guy who uh, made a mess, nearly ruined the France-Brazil game at Mexico 86 as well. He left Carlos, the Brazilian goalkeeper, away with a professional foul on Bruno Bellone. I think he was in extra time. Uh, So he had form. And as as we'll discuss later on, he he um 
he made a couple of terrible decisions later on in this game as well, but that's that's for later, obviously. So, uh, yeah, Kuman always like to sail close to the wind. There's an incident that happens at the end of this game again. We'll talk about that later. He, he had a <laughs> he, def- he definitely had a mean streak in him, Ronald Koeman. Uh The Van Bronklin incident is early on uh, through ball, um, uh, and he, he just clatters absolutely clatters. Not a million miles away, Mike from Schumacher, and all those years ago, not quite as high, not quite as violent, but it's it. There was impact, and of course, he followed that up with his um, words of encouragement as uh, he, he's opposite number only on the ground. But um, if, I don't know, John's already kind of intimated that the referee probably didn't have a great control of the the, the, the game. Um, that that seemed quite high for me. Was that just 1988? That's life. Go on with it. Uh, yeah, there's an element of that, I think. I think with Van Bruyken, there was no... Um... You know, Schumacher did a bit of backtracking after he'd hit Batistone and offered mm. to pay to cap his teeth and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> then that certainly wasn't what Van Bruyken was um, saying. He seemed to have a bit of a cub on all night. His his reaction after the penalty, actually, when he nearly saves it, is hilarious. Mm. It's uh, completely just abandons his dignity in public, which is always a always good value when adults do that. But um, yeah, it it had a similarity to it. I think, and then yeah, with eighty six, we just mentioned that the the Boulogne one when he when he ran through and uh, Carlos fouled him. There just seemed to be this stack of uh, incidents like that through through international tournaments in the eighties. You know, uh, a goalkeeper would wipe out a forward mm. that was clean through. Um, I think it's the, what kind of underpins some of this is. I, I think when we look back on it now and go on about how you know, fractious it was and tense and what it meant to the Dutch. You often wonder if some of that is maybe a bit painted on, you know, after the event kind of thing, um, particularly because of the way that, you know, the Dutch celebrated and stuff. But um, it felt like there was a spontaneity um, to what happened that night as well. I think driven by the atmosphere, there's a cracking atmosphere mm. in this game. And I, I think that is made by, you know, the sheer volume of, Dutch fans, it, it, it is like one of those, you know, half and half FA Cup final yeah. uh, semi-finals. You know, where, where you know where you get one end Initial each. Initial venue, yeah, yeah, and it's you know we see it so often the failure of the referee to kind of clamp down early on, you know, a, a one big decision leads to overcompensating, missing other things. You know, we'll come to the two uh, penalties in a minute. I think they're both poor. The second one is an absolute shocker, and it's, I cannot believe that that was given. But uh, yeah, a poor, poor game from the uh, from the referee. But it, you know, it it did assist, in, I think, in, that, in turning the game into something memorable. I mean, it's it's a very yeah. weird mirror image this game of the you know the the final in Munich. You know, you have a penalty to either side. You, you have a goal late and a half by arguably the greatest striker of their generation. And, you know, for the Dutch, uh, you know, in Munich in 74, that all takes place in the first half. Here it's in the second half. So there's mm-hmm. the, the brutality of the winner is, you know, there's just no time for West Germany to respond. So with that in mind, it's it's almost a perfect revenge for the Dutch for that 74 game. It's so cold, that goal at the end. Yeah. Um, the, way it just, the way it just ends the whole thing. I, I don't think they could have, you know, written that any better other other than beating Germany in the final in Munich. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you for finally saying that this game is 
not all <laughs> that. It, it's tense, of course, there's a lot in it. We, we, we've spoken about the, the, the narrative around why. Um, but this, the first half especially is is not good. And Rob, uh, Gary and I in last week's episode, uh, most summing up the, the, the whole group stage, but especially that, that final group, the amount of long-range shots that, that you see. And that, that, that's all teams seem to be limited to. They don't have either the the belief or the courage to, to, to try and work defences as we would, I think, normally um, expect to see now. Um, so there's a lot of that flying around. There is one good chance for Vol, although in that, that, that first half, um, it's a header that goes, I think, just, just goes over, can't quite get over the top of it. Um, but what I would, what I want to just say just now, because we won't really speak about West Germany, obviously, next week, um, and I know Klinsmann and Voller and, and Matthias, a bit of love for Andy Bremer, because that is a mm. super ball. He's shifted one side and and, and, and the other, um, and possibly, I'll, I'll open it up to the floor, possibly a, a, a player with this West German um team that's going to obviously be champions of the world in a couple of years. Um, the one that just maybe just gets left out a touch from that limelight or with Klinsmann and Matthias especially kind of grabbing it. Yeah, yep. I thought he, on, fantastic sorry. player. No, it's got one of my favourite well, my favourite thing about Brain, one of my favourite World Cup stats is that he scored penalties in the World Cup with both feet, um, which just sums him up really. Totally two-footed. Mm-hmm. Better at left back, but fine at right back. And in, in 1990 when they Played the Netherlands and beat them. Basically, the Netherlands had a winger marking him. I think it was Johnny Van Skip. And at one point, Bremer says to him during the game, like, "Why don't you do your own thing?" Why don't you? And of course, the t- that's also interesting in the context of this game because the roles were completely reversed within two years. Netherlands all over the place. Pretty similar team, fairly similar West German team. Uh, but yeah, I Bremer, I think is fan. I think you're right. He's overshadowed because he played with two such kind of charismatic players, Matthias and Klinsmann, for club and country. But yeah, I. I think, yeah, perfect modern fullback, never mind for yeah. 1990. Yeah, I, I think I, I've never seen a better fullback than Andy Bremer. Um, he's He was two-footed, but he was actually right-footed. He preferred using his right. Mm-hmm. He used it for the penalty in Italia 90 in the final against uh, Argentina. Um, he was he was a bit like Matthias in that he was around in the 80s. He, he came into the team after the 82 World Cup and he played in a couple of tournaments and looked all right. Decent player, nothing out of the ordinary, but quite good. And then in the late 80s, like Matthias, he flowered into just this absolute uh, colossus. Um, I, like he, Not only was he a, a fabulous defender, but he, he overlapped all the time. He was a constant goal threat. Any time he had a shot, the keeper would have to work. Um, I, I, I genu- I've thought of this a lot. and I, I've honestly, I've never seen anybody who was so good in that position at all facets of the game. Mm. Yeah, it's just that versatility. I mean, my goodness, what you would do now. We we often, not disparagingly, but things move on. Football moves on, and we we have to kind of assess that with today's eyes. But he is a player that, that just seems like he would easily fit into to any team at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we say that football's moved on. It has obviously, but I mean, the the, the big thing now is uh, you know the role of fullbacks as creative players, and I think with Bremer, so much went through him mm-hmm. for that Germany mm-hmm. team. You know, starting attacks and one of my favourite World Cup goals ever is the uh, it's a diving header by Quinsman against Yugoslavia, but the ball into the front post by uh, Bremer to get the glance on it's just it's pretty much undefendable. And you know, from dead balls, set pieces, free kicks, 
ones that fly off Paul Parker and go over you know, Peter Shilton. He was um, he was just involved in everything, and particularly at the end of the '86 and '90 World Cups. I mean, his thumbprints were all over that. Mm. Yeah, a thing a thing that gets my goal is when people say now, oh, they look at a recording of an old match and go, oh, it's so slow. This this team would be walloped by you know the current Liverpool team or whoever. Uh, my attitude is that the great players would be great in any era. The great players of the past. They would have access to the same conditions, same facilities as as players who are around now have. And someone like Andy Bramer would be an absolute superstar. Now, he had athleticism, he had skill, he had vision. He was a really brave player as well. Uh, he, he never he never wussed out of a challenge once. Um, he, he'd be going for nine figures today, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I wanted some love for him. I certainly got that. That's good stuff. We can we can move on. Um there's not quite the same violence when Van Basten tangles with um, Emo up the other end, but there is niggle there. There is um, a lack of pleasantries, um, shall we say, and it's just this kind of testy nature of that first half. Uh, let's get into the second. And these these incidents, um, the, the two penalties, um, Matthias again. Um, I think driving that that, that side on um, Klinsman is. Um, was it Raikard that takes him down? It is, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, takes him down. Is this? I think this is a penalty. I think he, he, he yeah, he I does. Do. There's contact. What makes it debatable, and this will not be the last time with dear old Jurgen Klinsmann, is the diving swan, the, the the body shape, which looks very like what we would come to know as simulation. Um, it can be both, and it can still be a penalty. No, who who says who says yeah. yes? Who who would agree that that's a penalty? Yeah, it is. I, I mean, think it is. It is. It's, yeah. I, think it's only the I think it's only the Klinsman factor that's making people wonder yeah. at all. You know, if if that was someone like Olaf Thorn going down a Buchwald, it'd be like, yeah, it's a penalty. Reichard throws out the leg, doesn't get the ball, so penalty. I quite like the reaction from the Dutch players. Van Broeklin starts clapping the referee sarcastically. I think it's Van Tegel and hoofs the ball at the referee's ass, yeah. which is hilarious. Ref, the ref doesn't even know who it is. Um, yeah, they don't take it particularly well. It's interesting. I own, my only slight reservation is: Are we seeing it through the eyes of twenty twenty three? Because most of the reports say it was a soft slash shouldn't have been a penalty, but I don't really see an issue with it. Like Rykard steps across him in the area. It looks. I mean, there's no question. Clinton makes the most of it, of course, and that might probably in this country that will be the first time we've seen that. Really, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's it's pretty clear actually. Yeah, I think it's a. It's a definite penalty. I just think there's an element of it where I think it just feels a bit cheap because he's running out of the area, actually, and mm -hmm. away from goal. It reminds me of one, um, I think Del Piero bought one like this off Nicky, but um, Old Trafford one time, and you just think, God, oh, free pop at goal from 12 yards for that. Mm. But, uh, that, you know, those are the rules. It is a penalty. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, he couldn't not give it. The other thing, of course, is it was so similar to the penalty in '74. Mike's already drawn the comparison, but like, if you're a Dutch, yeah. I think there's a, I think it might be your book, Jonathan, that one of the Dutch commentators basically said, "God, we've fallen for it again" or something. Yeah, it's a guy called Everett Ten Napel. He's he was kind of like the Barry Davis of Dutch football. He'd been around for years. I think he had all, he had even commentated on that '74 game himself, mm. or NOS, which is the Dutch equivalent of the BBC. Uh, and yeah, he said, "Oh no, it's it's happened again. We've fallen for it again." He was referring to Bernd Hulsenbein diving to get Breitner the penalty in Munich in '74, uh, but the Hulsenbein one is a clear dive. This one I wouldn't, for all Klinsmann's theatrics and for his reputation, I, w I wouldn't put that. In, I wouldn't put this one in the same bracket as that. 
Yeah, I would agree. Um, it takes an age from a test to be allowed to take the penalty. It certainly feels like that. I'm sure it did for him, um, as the Dutch do whatever they can to, to to delay that. And the referee does not help the situation. I think he wanted it on a particular centimetre squared um, for, for um, Matthias to, to, to plant the ball down. Um, Van Bronklin dives correctly, but it's just too excellent, um, I, I guess. Uh, and it's 1-0 West Germany. Um I think they have other chances as well. Again, Matthias, I've just so this is a coming of age. You, you write about this, Jonathan, haven't you? That, that before this tournament, he was kind of seen as a, a bit of a destroyer, a bit of a kind of functional player. And yeah, now he, he's just he was a good one. But that's yeah. he was seen as limited. He played yeah. for Munch and Gladbach for a long time, and then he went to Bayern. And uh, he, yeah, no, I mean, he, he 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 was their main guy when they lost the '87 European Cup final to Porto in Vienna. And that was a game that they had under total control until mm. 15 minutes from the end. They just dozed off. They forgot to score a second goal, basically, and Porto punished them. Uh, but the, Mateus took a lot of slagging after that game from the German media. He um, he was seen as you know this almost a pretender who'd who'd let them down again. But uh, I think it was the summer of Euro '88. He joined Inter, and he promptly led them to their first title in about 10 years. I think um, that was, late '80s was really when he just improved out of all recognition from what he'd been before. And he'd been a decent player before. He wasn't some sort of uh, non-entity by any means. He was a good player, but he just took it to another level around that time. Just as well, a Bayern Munich team with low thermotase would not forget to score a second goal in a European Cup final um, again. Um, okay, there, there is a second uh, penalty incident up the other end. Um, it's the eventual golden boy, of course, Marco van Basten. Um Jurgen Koller involved in this, I think. Uh, this looks more debatable, gents. Um, there's one angle, and we're so used to looking at this in about 14 different angles now, where I think he just clips his trailing leg, but he is on the way down. And again, by the standards of 1988, this does seem soft. Big Ron is in no doubt. Brian Moore is in no doubt um, that this, this isn't a penalty. I think this would be given today, but by the standards of 88, I'm not sure. I'll look. Might go first because he was he was last to be saying the last one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't think this is a a penalty. So it starts with this great ball from Cooman uh, to Van Basten, uh, sort of switch of play, and then uh, sort of Van Basten checks and then goes into the area. And I think it's like clear second favourite for the ball. And as Cole slides it, I think. Kohler misses the ball, but I think he mm -hmm. misses Van Basten as well. And Van Basten just kind of leans into him. It's a really strange, it's almost like he's it's some sort of self-preservation thing to kind of ride the ride the challenge. But I don't, you know, neither of them play the ball and then you know they play on. There's no throwing the arms up, there's no uh, histrionics from Van Basten, who looks completely, you know, as surprised as, as Kohler when uh, when the penalty's actually given. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I I can't believe that was given, really. But I mean, it, but you do have to remember, you know, the referee would have had one look at it. I think uh, from the replay I saw, he was on the other side of the pit. So from the angle that Cole was sliding in, and if Van Basten leaning in, that that probably led him to believe that he'd been um, he'd been bundled over. Um, but I think you know, if, if in the glorious era of VAR we live in, I think it, I think mm. that may have got um, may get overturned. Jonathan. I, just, I mean, I've seen it uh, dozens of times over the years, and I just think, as, as Mike says, the, the ref is miles away. 
there's no way he can be even yeah. to be sure. That's a contradiction in terms, but you know what I mean. Um, it's it's a scandalous decision. Uh, yeah, and you can see even if you watch Van Basten's face when he gets up, the look of just absolute shock. He can't believe he's had this handed to him. He he, uh, like. Kohler and him would have would go on to have many battles in Syria over the next few years. That Kohler was at Juventus and Van Basten was at Milan, and the majority of the time Kohler would get the better of him. That's how good he was. Uh, but uh, he'd been having a difficult time with Van Basten on this particular night. Uh, but it, he didn't fa- like you. You look at it again. It's basically a stumble by Van Basten, and Kohler doesn't do anything wrong as far as I can see. It's a ter- it's a terrible decision, Rob. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it would have been given, but only in that. Do you remember the COVID season when they were punishing every contact? Hmm. It's. I think it would have been given in that season. I don't think it would be given now personally. Um, but yeah, it's not a penalty at all. Um, it's worth saying also just it was Erwin Koeman's pass. I feel bad because throughout this podcast, I keep saying Koeman. Always talking about... Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, sorry. No, it's not your fault. Honestly, it's, it was only because it reminded me of something I've been doing all throughout. Um so, yeah, um, and it's worth stressing, I think about 60 minutes ago when this happens, and for all the possession and blah, 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 they're not creating chances, really, so they're getting no. quite close. Um, Koeman has his u- Ronald Koeman has his usual heat seekers from distance, but not much is happening. Um, so it's a like it's a hugely important moment. What I would say, I think the penalty is brilliant from Ronald Koeman. It's almost nonchalant, which yeah. is, in the circumstances, and also given that he's been on one most of the game, trying to looking for pick fights, I think it's a fantastic penalty. Um <laughs> Weren't many yeah. better with the ball dead at that point in European football? Why they're inside the box or outside? No, it's got about twenty in the previous season. Sorry, that's the thing about Kuman. Isn't isn't he something like fifth or sixth on Barcelona's all-time list of scores? Just not just penalties, mm-hmm. but purely because the number of times he was allowed to just amble down the midfield and just steady himself and have a crack from thirty, even thirty-five yards. Uh, he ended he ended up on some ludicrous figure of goals for Barcelona in the end. Yeah, there was no, and you mentioned that commentary, Jonathan, a minute ago from the 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 West German penalty, and it has to be in the stands. It has to be on the pitch again, again. This is happening again. We cannot get over this barrier. And Rob's right; it's not as if they're peppering the goal frame, and and there's a feeling that this is coming. This is perhaps a gift. They take the gift, um, and then it becomes a 15 minute cup semi final, really. Um, Finished at the very, very end. Um, this is a brilliant goal. Uh, it is Ronald Koeman. Probably a bit more space than maybe we'd be used to. But again, this is the final minutes of a, a European semi-final in quite a hot night, I think. Um, brilliant pass to Vouters, who doesn't mess about either. Um, superb pass uh, right into the path of, of Van Basten. Kohler is just that slight bit behind them in a way that he wasn't for the penalty, which is all Van Basten needs. Um and it's it's a great finish. It's an it's a deadly finish. It's accurate. Again, through these modern eyes, I think there would be a whole host of um, analysis about the goalkeeper position and should he have a stronger hand, blah blah blah. Instead of just saying that was just clinically clinically manufactured from Ronald Koeman all the way to to, to Van Basten. John, I think I think the game does not fit the hype that it maybe has had over the last 35 years, but this goal probably does. It is a brilliant finish. It's, it's a funny kind of a goal. It's the kind of goal you mightn't see today when defences are more congested, even in the last mm-hmm. minute. Um, having said that, I think a better keeper than Immel might have got to it. Yeah. 
Immel was an okay keeper, but he wasn't one of the greats by any stretch. Um, this was his only tournament. He later ended up at Man City uh, in the mid nineties, I think. Um, he he was not as good as Schumacher, who he replaced, and he wasn't as good as Bodo Wilgner either, who replaced him. Um, I don't have the goal in front of me right now, but if I watch it again, I I think Immel is standing in a place where that makes it that little bit more difficult for him to reach it. But then again, how is he to know that Van Basten is just yeah. suddenly going to? Yeah, and it's uh, first time. Slide in it's, and, and shoot yeah. immediately. Yeah, it's that first time thing that, that makes the goal wrong because he, he doesn't have time to, to set himself. And it's, that's how it appears, a bit slow, a bit going down in installments, just a wee bit slack. Exactly. It's like the sudden thrust of a dagger or something. He does take him by surprise. Yeah, I, I love this goal. I think the pass from it's four touches from inside their own half to score and the ball barely leaves off ground only when Valtas kind of spins it up as he controls it. I love the pass from Kuman, which takes out about three or four players in his own half into Valtas. And I think you see that kind of ball less now because the centre midfield is more yeah. populated. That's one thing I noticed in this tournament. That you often have teams only playing with one central midfielder and they'll have kind of two who are halfway between the wings. So it means you could play Kuman used to be brilliant. I remember him doing it at Old Trafford as well for a goal. Um, we're going to and see it in the second semi-final as well. <laughs> yeah. Someone that's just allowed to come straight out and, and, and into that space and, and, and really, really be dangerous. And Valtas, who quietly had a really good tournament. Yeah, he does his part perfectly. But I think you're right. I think more than anything, it's the element of surprise, definitely. It's also a very skillful thing to stretch one way, hook your foot around it and get it back across. Um, the other thing that struck me about goal is Van Basten's celebration. There's no kind of... You know, not much yeah. joy, no catharsis, just kind of, it's almost like a normal goal. He celebrated his goals against England a lot more wildly than he did this one. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he's just exhausted, maybe. Probably. Uh, and he, he needed oh, the yeah, goals against England, obviously. Mike, yeah. you've written about tournaments before. This congested, squashed kind of um, uh, season, I suppose, into, and this really is squashed. This is just what, over two weeks. Um, Van Basten turns up, of course, against England, and he's he, he's here in this, this particular moment. Him and Cora have been going at it all all evening, um, and all of a sudden he, he's he's stepping into to legendary states. He's going to convert that, of course, um, next week. Um, but but big moments, big players in this really concentrated period of time. That that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and that's that's how I kind of sum up this Dutch team. Really, I was I was thinking about this um, earlier on today. Is they're not really a team that's got a signature performance, I don't think. Mm. Where you can look at one game and think, oh, they 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 put away you know another really good side convincingly. But they're a team of great individuals who do great individual things, and that that's that's what this tournament's about, really. I mean, the, the two goals in the final, obviously, you'll come on to um, the hat trick and this goal here, and uh, yeah, it's Van Basten's ascension to greatness really after after you know quite a, a mediocre um you know injury afflicted first season at AC Milan and you know he, he didn't even turn up um at the tournament as a as a starter for the Netherlands but that quickly changed you know and we, I mean you know, and we see that so often as well I think the uh if I could if I could just touch on the goal quickly um I think the thing that really makes it is the ball from Vouters because it's just slightly under hit that just it slows down, just giving Van Basten just enough time to hook his foot round it. And I wonder if on this, if Kohler is affected by what happened with the penalty. Has to be. I, I think he's worried about going to ground here. And by the time he's realised what Van Basten's going to do, he, he does go, but it's it's too late. And because it's 
an early shot as well. I mean, we'll see that in the second semi-final too. I don't think Immer was set properly. Um, and it was it was on its way past him before before he kind of set himself. Um, so I think yeah, it might it might look at first glance a bit like he should have saved it, but it's just it's just a brilliantly improvised finish um, and would have been his best improvised finish of the tournament. But for dot dot dot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, before we get to reaction and legacy, which is you know this is a famous game. Um, I've only seen the highlights of this. I don't know if if, if anybody has, has has watched the or had the opportunity to watch the, the the whole ninety minutes. But Ron Atkinson basically said, "Look, this is this is just this is absolutely deserved by far the greater team." Even in the the the, the, the halfway through the game, um, you know the the Dutch are dominating the game. Certainly, the highlights that I've seen doesn't really reflect that. Not that. The Netherlands aren't in it, but it's you know could absolutely go either way. West Germany are are, are, are obviously causing problems, are dangerous. Um, anyone who's seen more than twenty odd minutes of highlights is it one of those that the Dutch have just got all the possession, but um, the the, the, would, the public would would kind of vote them as as deserved winners. Um, no, I wouldn't think so. I did sit down and watch the whole thing again. Now this is seven or eight years ago when I first started writing Euro Summits. Mm. Um, it wasn't like as I've said earlier in this in this podcast. It wasn't a great game. Uh, too much riding on it. Too many players uh, just rather than you know trying to seize the moment, they were they were afraid. I think of hmm. screwing up. That you can see that that's evident in some in some performance. Hullet, for example, did nothing. Um, I remember uh, on RTE that night, uh, Johnny Giles was one of the pundits, and he he the presenter Bill O'Hurley he said to him. This fellow Hullet, he's he's not really delivered, has he? And Giles made the point that oh well, if if we'd never heard of this guy going into this tournament, we'd probably all be saying how good he was. But because mm. there's been so much hype about him coming in, we're expecting miracles from him, and he's he's not fully living up to that. Having said that, he really didn't do a whole lot in that German game at all. Yeah, well, we we spoke about I think it was Kieran Radnage's preview, almost. <laughs> Almost irritating levels of hype uh, around Hula. I think it was yeah. that anyway. But it, 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 it something that we're we're so used to now. But it was maybe just started to be a, a, a thing then. Um, okay, the the initial reaction, the reaction on the pitch then of uh, Ronald Koeman's famous um, use of Olaf Ton's shot that obviously when they swapped, um, he pretended to wipe his his backside with which created problems in those Dutch cities around the border that did not go down well at all and he was asked to to visit I think it might have been Aris or, or somewhere like that um, to go happen. and yeah to, to go and um, show a bit of remorse <laughs> which he refused I think um, it's all coming out I suppose um, th- this is the Netherlands finals to come technically but Jonathan this is their final really isn't it it's still the one that's talked about 35 years from now yeah I mean um, Rienus Mikkels said afterwards that he, he had an extra feeling of um, satisfaction he almost certainly had a big thing against the Germans he was 17 or 18 when the war ended I think uh, mm-hmm. and uh, from 80 to 83 he managed Cologne and Litbarski was there as a player and absolutely hated him he was a real uh, martin he, he, um, he worked the players to the bone in training and some of them uh, began to suspect he was punishing them for the crimes of the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he was he was a real one-off because he was um, it was his way or the highway. 
and uh, it's the, as regards the Pullman thing. I mean, there's there's no footage of it, which may or may not be a bad thing. Uh, there is one photograph of it, uh, but I, I can just think like if a German player had done that with a Dutch jersey, we would never ever have heard the end of it. No. Uh, but the Germans just had to let it go uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. Well, those obvious reasons being, and this is what international sport does, I suppose. Even decades after those events, they cast they cast themselves in their sporting heroes, and and the the, the Dutch fans absolutely did do that. They saw themselves or the best of themselves, maybe not an accurate and full picture of themselves in that team. We are more liberal, we have uh, a black captain that's celebrated, there's fans with, you know, raster wigs in the, the, the stands Germany, they're making monkey noises in the, the, the stands they're, they are they are evil, we are good um, which of course is a caricature of course is not an accurate, um, completely full and accurate um, description but that's what international sport does We all of us to an extent get suckered into this time and time again but here Mike, Rob, I don't know if you've you got any thoughts on, on the immediate aftermath. This is when it becomes really, really acute. There are thousands of people in the streets of, of the Netherlands that night. The biggest since the liberation, and for a gener- certainly a certain generation, um, of course this is about the war, and people are, are very upfront about it after a while. But this, this way that we use sport, this prism, to see this imagined... Um, best picture of ourselves is is really interesting and very acute here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was reading something in David Wimmer in Brilliant Orange. So he says that like, the Dutch, the sober, sensible, calm, careful, careful Dutch were completely, utterly, entirely out of their minds with joy. It's also interesting. This was the start of a kind of concentrated rivalry between these two mm. teams because they play in qualification for Italian ninety, mm. then at Italian ninety, then. Euro 92 and the Netherlands could have put, they beat with Germany, uh, beat Germany as it was then, and thought they'd put them out and it was only, they didn't because of Scotland beating the CAS. Um, but yeah, the moral high ground stuff's kind of interesting. I think the Dutch seeded a bit of that when during the World Cup qualifiers, I think there was a banner comparing Matthias to Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Uh, on what grounds? I have no idea. I don't know what the logic is there, but um, but yeah, it did get quite nasty. Obviously, the Rijkaard Voller thing is one of the most iconic kind of flashpoints in the World Cup. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. But uh, in terms of the reaction, I mean, it's just so hard for someone like me or any of us, I guess, to to know what it was like to be Dutch at that moment, particularly for Dutch people of a certain age. Like, it's just been a kind yeah. of euphoria you can't really understand. Um, yeah. Mike, any thoughts to wrap up this? Um, probably the most famous game of the championships, if you're not Irish. Yeah, I think, well, part of international football's appeal, I suppose, it, it becomes a vehicle for that those kind of emotions, doesn't it, I suppose? Any environment where you have, you know, uh, flags and anthems and people exchanging crests, and particularly when you get to these kind of stages of tournaments, you know you've got, well, half the country, two, two-thirds of the country, maybe watching you back home, yeah, it... it it can, you know, become about something bigger. It, it can feel like it's mean, or it can mean something bigger. And now it's tough for the, you know, the modern generations of German players to be cast into this uh, role of uh, villains because of history. I mean, over, you know, I speak as an English person saying this. You know, we England have got this dynamic with 
you know lots of countries as well where it's uh, it's you know it's it's celebrated yeah you know, pretty wildly sometimes when you know when when England are turned over by uh, you know an opponent that they maybe have a bit of a fractious history or complicated history with off the field as well you know mm. seen that lots of times saw that two years earlier at the you know the 86 world cup uh with argentina but um yeah the celebrations are interesting i think they or the dutch players they didn't they club together they bought renus meekles a watch didn't they mm. and presented it to him i think the day before the final uh they went out that night to a night well, in, in hamburg, hamburg yeah yeah, yeah. F- four days before the final i mean I, I, they might have had one drink. They might have had twenty. I don't. <laughs> I think I they might have a few. But this is this is one thing I did want to ask. Robert had uh, intimated earlier. You know, Renus Meikle's a tough, tough guy. Jonathan's mentioned his time um, in club football in Germany, and mm. I am fist, and and he he's the law. And yet during this tournament, which very short time, as I said, just keep things ticking over, keep people happy, keep players happy, and. That's probably a prime example of that. Um, Rutilet's private room in a club in Hamburg. Christ only knows what went on uh, in that evening, but it just keeps that spirit up. It's all about keeping people in that that happy happy place because they're, they're in that confined space for two weeks, three weeks in prep. That's the thing. I mean, it, it, the, the tournament was literally a quarter of the size it is now back then. It's all over in two weeks. There's some huge teams sitting on the sidelines that didn't even make it through the qualifiers. Like... Um, uh, you know, France, Italy, Italy for, for example, France, yeah. Um, so it's probably a little easier, it was probably a little easier back then than it is now. First of all, it's for only for a fortnight, not for a month and a bit or whatever. Uh, there's no social media. The press, while probably still very hungry, uh, there simply isn't the same volume of coverage as there was then. So it's probably that little bit easier for people like Mickles to keep the likes of. Hullet and Koeman and Van Basten under wraps just for that little fortnight. Um, the, the Euros were so concentrated back then. I mean, in the 70s, they were even smaller. It was just four teams. It was all over in about five days. Um, and I, when I, especially like when I, when I watched Euro 2016, the first 24 team tournament, and just match after match, 36 matches to get rid of eight teams, I think it was, uh, I, I wanted to weep. <laughs> you, you won't find a bigger Euros and World Cup nerd than me, but. I was getting sick, and I was, I, I was falling asleep during some games, and I think that's that that's a that's a really precious thing that's been lost with just the, the relentless expansion of the Euros uh, year after year, decade after decade, um, and and of course this applies to the World Cup too. Yeah, just one last point on the the, the Netherlands and West Germany. There, there was a bit of violence throughout various towns and cities that evening, and there would be again throughout the 1990s um, uh, around these games and around fans and, uh, and whatever else. But in terms of the football and rivalry, probably didn't get bigger than it was right at that moment or over those next two years. Rob, you mentioned they were doing qualification. They had that moment in Milan. But again, those three Milan players, the three Inter players playing at the absolute top. These are, these are Two of the, the the absolute top international sides, European champions this year. You're going to get the world champions in a couple of years. Um, it's just that kind of perfect perfect blend of tension, if not aesthetic football experience, Rob. Yeah, exactly. The Italian ninety game was a classic in its own way, mainly because of some of the individual performances: Klinsmann, Buchwald, Bremer. Um, yeah, I want to say one last thing. I, 
probably not worth dwelling on, but we should acknowledge the kits of both teams, which are just fantastic. And there was a piece in 442 in, I think, about 2019, saying this is basically, in kit terms, this is the most important match of all time. Um, because by the time, certainly by Italian 19, I think during the qualifiers, Netherlands changed uh, to a, just a kind of classic orange kit. This mm. is well, they have the famous one with chevrons, and I'm sure everyone knows both kits. But I think you could argue pound for pound, Euro 88 is the best tournament ever for kits because there are no really shit ones. There are three or four classics. I love the Italy one as well. Um, but yeah, th- those two kits are probably among the most originals of them, among the most expensive in what is now like a bloody huge industry. Yeah, that was the uh, uh, was the only time the Dutch wore that kit. I think for mm, those five five games in that tournament. Do, do you know what I find interesting? And maybe you could explain this to me. The, the USSR's kit, away kit, the same in the tournament has the same pattern, but no one give no one ever talks about it being a classic. What is that color? Is it because it's red? But it has the same chevrons. Is that the same color? It's, it is color. It's it's and is it the team as well? It is, and again, this is something we can maybe discuss in our kind of wrap-up show in the final, because this is not one team setting a marker down in the first minute of a tournament and going right through to the end, playing exhilarating stuff every single game. They take their moments, they're a tournament team, but they're romanticised, I think, way beyond a good tournament team that that, that just peak at certain moments. Um, but let's go back to 1974 and 78. There is a public will to see yeah. this manifestation come Come, come to pass this, this, this footballing nation get a reward, and orange is a color that's that's it's not really that popular in international football or football in general. There's, it's not, it's not a a a, a, a color that's, that's really shared by by too many too many yeah. other famous leading um, teams. So put all that into the mix, and and Hullet and Van Basten looking just majestic on that particular afternoon in Munich that we'll speak about next week, and and then you go. I would agree with you, by the way, the kits in this tournament, I think Italian 90 as well, obviously some of them don't really change, are probably as good as it gets. Some interesting design in the 90s, just half the fabric would have been um, a, a, a lot better <laughs> because it's absolutely gigantic. Um, but you couldn't you couldn't design something iconic. It's made iconic by the action, no? And, yeah. and I, yeah. I think the, the, the rarity of, of, of an orange kit, I think um, there's only one team that you associate that with. If I yeah, could just, like... in, just one little thing. Um, Rob mentioned earlier a minute ago about the USSR, their away kit that they wore against England. It was actually their home kit. For some reason, right? they were, mm. yeah, their home oh. kit was red, white, red. For some reason, they were made to change into white again and again and again by FIFA uh, to the point where they wore the white far more often than the red. Um, nobody knows why. Now, obviously, a red kit will, will clash with plenty of other teams, but... The, the common uh, misapprehension is that the white kit was their home kit. Mm. And I don't blame you because it was what they wore the vast majority of the time. But, but believe it or not, uh, the red kit, which looked pink at Euro 88 in the, yeah, in the summer, it um, that was their home kit. But they only, they only got to wear it once in five games. Yeah, there's a kind of there's a bit of a neon haze to the Dutch kit, I always thought, which um, mm. kind of it made it feel, I don't know, a bit kind of like graffiti or, or something. Some of the players uh, hated it. Johnny Van Schip, he said, we look like goldfish uh, when he had to try it on first uh, before the tournament. Um, I, I personally can't decide if it's awful or fantastic. It's it's just it's such a strange design. And I, I always thought that those two shirts at Euro 88, the USSR and the, the Dutch, um, 
those were the only times I ever saw a team use that design. But since being on Twitter the last sort of seven or eight years, you see these Twitter accounts that are dedicated to football kits. And I've seen everyone from the USA to Ipswich Town had designs of the, I think it's Ipswich anyway, um, mm. used this design at the time for a little while. I never knew that. And yeah, and I was the same with West Germany because I think Cork City had the same pattern. That's right, yeah, yeah. And a few others, which I didn't know at the time either. Um, yeah. Thank you, gents. Thank you for the, the catwalk advice. Thank you for <laughs> the um, rundown on, again, one of the most iconic games um, in European Championship history. Jonathan, I think you have to go now. You're not going to be able to go through the USSR. Thank, so, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope to join. I will be joining you um, next week for the, the final one. I think it is, isn't it? it, it is. Yeah, it is, yeah. It is. I really look forward to that. Thanks. Thank you, we do too. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks. And so then to Stuttgart, I think, the next evening, um, where the USSR, who were just really, really um, starting to motor um, in power uh, and um, technique uh, against the Italy side that we, we discussed last week as being, well, David Lacey called them the most balanced, and it was hard to argue against that, but shot shy and and really, really lacking in goals. It was a, a wet evening. Rob, um, give us the teams, please, before mm. we, we, we try and drag how many minutes out of the actions. <laughs> yeah, you're right about Italy being shot shy, which is interesting because... In February, they'd plugged USSR 4-1 in a friendly. Viale had scored two, um, but he was, alas, nowhere near as efficient in this one. So, yeah, uh, one change for USSR. Belenov was injured, so they brought in another midfielder, Gotsmanov. So they have it's essentially 4-5-1, but the three central midfielders in particular, and also Litovchenko, who's nominally the right winger, just going where they want, really. It's really interesting to watch. So the Simon goal, back four, Besanov, Kiryachula, and Kuznetsov, who was both terrific and a bit stupid in one moment. Rats at left-back, Lutovchenko, Zavarov, Elenikov, Mikhailichenko, Gotsmanov, then Protoso up front. Uh, Italy, same again, 4-4-2. Zenga, Bergami, Ferry, Baresi, Maldini, Donadoni, Di Napoli, Giannini, Ancelotti, Viali, Mancini. Same team, I think, they pick for every game in the tournament. One thing, one quite interesting thing is that apparently before the game, Vicini announces five penalty takers. Never heard of that before. I don't, I don't know who they were, and I'd love to know whether people who missed in 1990, like Donadoni, mm. were on the list. But, but yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, yeah, okay. In two minutes, we get something that, that really is a hark back to another era. Um, Oli Kuznetsov goes right through the back of, of Gianluca Cavialli. It's it, it probably is a booking. Um, it's just very unusual to see even any cards in um, 80s football that early, although Scotland-Uruguay might be um, <laughs> a bit of an exception. Um, but Ole Kuznetsov would then miss the final. He hadn't picked up a, a yellow card in yeah. the tournament. His first yellow card, or the yellow card that he was, he was hanging on, came from the qualifying, because it was, I think, only... Mike, you'll know this better than me if this is this is true. I I think it might even be Euro ninety six at World Cup ninety four maybe where the the they basically said no we all start afresh um it's uh uh yeah, everyone's on a clean slate when the, the tournament proper begins. But this was a hangover from the, the qualifying that that's how it used to be. Um and Kuznetsov would, would miss the final after only two minutes. Um no tears Rob we you got on and he he did the biz, as we'll discuss. It's fascinating, but, isn't it? He, and they yeah. didn't just accept the decision, doesn't dispute it at all. Um, just, yeah, before 
bring Mike in, it's worth saying 22 players who started, 11 of them were on mm. a card, which mm. is fascinating, isn't it? Uh, I think because that's obviously the only one who got one. Uh, but they, yeah, I mean, he, he was a brilliant player, um, as you know, from his time at Rangers. And the, yeah, it was a big blow that didn't affect his performance one bit, though, in this no. game. The referee was card happy. I'm amazed that it's only Kuznetsov that, 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 that missed out because he, he, I think he was trying to book pretty much everyone who, who wasn't on, on a yellow um, as well. Uh, the tackle that it, you, you intimated there, Rob, but Mike, that, that was, that's a ridiculous thing to do two minutes in a, in a semi-final when you know you could miss, miss the final. And it's not even, I mean, Viali's a very talented player, but he, he's still a fair bit away from, from goals. There's no clear and present danger, as it were. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe he was banking on the fifteen-minute amnesty you used to, <laughs> where where kind of anything went, or you know, you were allowed one first. Um, yeah, it, it, it's rough for him. I wonder. I do wonder if he realised actually. I, I, I wonder if maybe someone maybe maybe told him afterwards or at half time. So I think Jeff it, Reeves, it's a, maybe. Yeah, Jeff. Well, he's retired. <laughs> retired today. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, because if the booking's from that long ago as well, if you go right back to qualifying, would teams have tracked that kind of stuff then? I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I remember like even, even as late as Gascoigne getting booked in Turin, it took uh, Motson, I think, a second to realise that I think I think Gascoigne was going to miss the final. He does he does kind of skip a beat. Whether there's a massive awareness of, of this thing, I think because of Gascoigne and the whole the whole kind of theatre around that particular one. So That's... you need a famous story then for commentators in the future to say, right, who's who's next? Who's going to have that? Who could have this moment in the knockout um, stages kind of going forward? Yeah, exactly. Because it plants that seed, doesn't it? Because Italian ninety, it actually happened the night previously as well. Because um, Kanidra had been, um, yeah. I think, three other four players, of them, yeah, four of them. But yeah, most the, the most damaging one I think was Kanidra. Because yeah, because yeah, that was, I mean, basically that was their ch- any chance of winning the final probably gone by that point. Because uh, because he'd been so uh, effective for them, but um, yeah, we've got tough break for um, Kuznetsov. But yeah, he knuckled uh, knuckled down and uh, got through it. But um, I mean, you know, obviously if he had his time again, he wouldn't do it. But I just I just think you you could do that challenge then, and sixty percent of the time get away yeah. with that in the first yeah. two minutes. Yeah, I th- as you said, you get you the referee said that's your that's your your. You're, you're free one going um, yeah. in the book the next time. Sorry, Rob. No, no, it's okay. I, th- I agree with you, but I think he's partly booked because someone else has already taken out Mancini. This is the second mm. minute, mm. and I think there might be an element of that. that so basically, it was half a yellow card between them, uh, which obviously is no good because Nets. I also think this was a, it looks like a deliberate tactic by Russia to try to bully mm. what was a, quite a young Italian team. Um, and they are really putting it about early on. Obviously, Italy traditionally had a reputation for knowing uh, how to use their studs. But I th- it looked like a, a deliberate tactic. Maybe not, maybe just... Because both fouls were quite kind of... There was one on Mancini and one on Viali. Both quite gratuitous, both near the halfway line, as you say. Mm. Nothing, nothing, no danger or anything. Um, so, yeah, maybe so. I'd also... I might look into this for another pod. I'd love to know who the first player was to miss a major game through mm. a yellow card suspension. We know about players who miss FA Cup finals, like Remy Moses, through red cards. It'd be interesting to know a major tournament who was for... Maybe it was Kuznetsov, I don't know. Might look into yeah. that. Um, it's pouring with rain. It's nervy 
this game from from what I can see. There's a f- some familiarity. Yeah, Gianluca Valli's missing chances as he has throughout the tournament. Mancini's hooked at half time for being kind of ineffective. Maybe he was injured from that assault uh, in the very early stages. But this. That the first half is very, very, it's cages all hell, Rob, really. It, it, it's not, absolutely not one for the ages. It's it's a semi-final, it's, it, like the last one. At least the last one had this this grudge and narrative and, and, and colour about it, maybe. Um, maybe there's just too much riding on it for, for players who maybe aren't quite used to that. Yeah, and I think for most of the tournament, US are played this way, happy to play on the break, um, very cagey. Maybe maybe the England game was deceptive because England was such a mess in defence that they could open up with two passes, whereas here, obviously, we'd have to work a lot harder. You're right, there aren't many chances. I was surprised watching his tournament about how many Viali missed. We remember his shocker, if you like, as Italia 90, mm. um, more because Scalacci ever took him. He didn't have some great games. But actually here, he scores a really good goal at Spain. But for the most part, he has a bad tournament. I, I reckon he, across the tournament, had eight chances that are good or better and he scores one um and i'm not like i absolutely adored viali the sabdoria title win is one of my favorite book stories ever and he was the star of it um but yeah it just surprised me a bit because i don't think his reputation took a hit until italia 90 um so yeah and mancini already feels like the kind of the the moment against west germany is gone doesn't it he's hooked getting hooked earlier and early you know he goes off Ultimately, comes on against Spain, against Denmark, and either makes or scores. And then in this game, he's on at halftime. Um, so, yeah, it feels like the, the kind of, the, I don't know, the light's fading a bit for him. Yeah. Mike, we, we've talked about this before. I'd be really interested in your your views on this. Again, as someone who's who's written so well on international football, um, Viali Mancini, we, we know what they were doing. We know what they would go on to do um, together at, at Sampdoria as a, as a partnership with that kind of chemistry. Um, just not firing, just not clicking um, at international football. Um, in uh, Italy, everything apart from that front two, it seems so well um, positioned and in place for, for posting their World Cup. Um and as we talked about last week, how lucky they were that, that that someone just found their golden season, golden summer, and, and kind of came to life um, during um, those, those those few weeks um, in 1990, of course, in, in Scalacci. Um, what what stops players making that that jump from being excellent, prolific, reliable players at club level just just did not fitting in um, an international setup because it, it's it's kind of undeniable with these two great players. Yeah, it's really strange, this, isn't it? Um, when you think of the chemistry between them as, uh, as well, it's um, it, it almost looks like it shouldn't make sense. I mean, yeah, football isn't actual football, isn't fantasy football, where you just put the highest scoring players together yeah. um, and assume it's going to work. But um, but it's so strange with these two because you know they work, but like stapled onto the front of um, that Italian team, it um it it just wasn't happening i mean i I'd, I'd love to give you an explanation but to, to me that's um that's inexplicable really and um i with just to, with respect to Viali, actually i mean he he had a quite a poor mexico 86 mm. which you kind of give him a bit of a free hit at that one because he's younger yeah he was young um he was very raw then and then i think this italian team as well because it was um it's kind of a developmental team really 
it looks like a team to me yet that's, that's not ready to win yet. Hmm. And what's what's quite interesting about the match is that um, between eighty three when they, so when they failed to qualify for the Euros up until the eve of Italia ninety, which is almost seven years, they only, they only played something like sixteen competitive <laughs> internationals because they didn't have to qualify for the two World, for Cups. two World Cups. Yeah. They were champions, and then you know they were hosts, and so this tournament it is a bit of a a staging post for them. Really, you can kind of I guess write this off as a bit of a free hit but it's interesting that they had the same problems here that they would have at Italia yeah. 90 I mean there's a there's a nice line in the in all played out by Pete Davis where he, they, they keep winning one nil he said well you know you, that's all well and good but unless you start storing, scoring some goals someone's going to knock you out of this thing and then um, yeah shot shy uh or off target performance here against the USSR. And it's interesting that nine of this team actually started the semi-final against Argentina in mm. um, 1990s, but it's virtually the same team. Um, obviously, they're, you know, they're, they're building towards the World Cup. Uh, and the, the thing that make, I think makes the difference then, I thought I was putting this down, I think it's there. Di Agostini comes in for Ancelotti in 90. And obviously, you know, Scalacci is the one they just they find right at the end but um but they still then couldn't get over the line for mm. the um the same reasons and you know drop Baggio for that match after having a great tournament so it's strange because it's not what we come to associate with Italy in the future I think particularly in the 90s when there was such a surplus of options mm, yeah. that that they just didn't know which two to put together I think yeah. I think this was their best front two but it just it just, it just didn't just work in this tournament well, the USSR took the lead early-ish on in the second half, just before the hour mark. Uh, Lipunchenko um, was the scorer, but it was really about how the goal was made for me. Well, partly. Partly this is beautiful, partly maybe just the slightest bit of luck. Um, Oleg Kuznetsov, as he has done, and one thing to do against an England team that doesn't know if it's New York or New Year, um, <laughs> but this is this is a semi-final, this is a you know some legendary midfielders and, and 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 defenders in this Italy team, and he is purring through um, his ball to Mikhailichenko is is exactly what it should be. That control Miko does I think one thing lays it off into the um, to the to the feet of uh, Lutovchenko. Um, he does his best. I think there's maybe a slight little break for him, but he keeps his cool. Um, and even the the, the kind of um, diving Berezi is, is sold one um, as he just kind of. Camley places it away, and uh, much to think the shock of John Watson a wee bit on on, on comms. This isn't really um, perhaps in the script of, of the game as it was. It was maybe going, um, but the build up to that, Rob, we've seen this. We've seen them do this. They just take their time, take their time, absorb some blows, and then just start to cut teams open. Yeah, with ease. my favourite part of the whole goal actually is. Kuznetsov's interception originally reads it so well. So Altabelli tries to lay it off to Ancelotti yeah. about 40 yards from goal. And I love watching classy defenders just replay like that and just make the forward look an idiot. So he does that, goes for Mikhail Chico. Paradoxically, the other sweeper, Berezi, does really well, but he kind of gets punished for his own good defending. Yeah, because he does. Litovchenko's first shot is basically piss poor. It's going through Zenga. Berezi drop, uh, blocks it, comes back to Litovchenko, who... A bit like Van Basten the night before, reacts so quickly and just toe bangs it with his other foot into the far corner. So it, it is a good finish, but it's kind of 
um, yeah, it's, it's definitely lucky. If Barisi doesn't block the original shot, which he has to because Lita Chenko's only six shards out, but um, if he doesn't, it goes Zenga saves easily. But yeah, no, it's all about Kuznetsov, who it's just it's just such a classy player, and um, yeah, classic bit of. And there were a lot of defenders in this tournament, as you said many times, who were really accomplished on the ball as well, and were very happy just to go on these little meanders. Um, and why not? Mate, your thoughts on that goal? It's it's creation, it's execution. Yeah, what, what's striking really is just the, the kind of ease with which they just cut through what we know is a really good defence. It's uh, mm. it's so clinical the way they go through. And um, yeah, he gets a bit of luck with the way uh, the ball breaks off Barese, but the finish I really like actually. It's a lovely mm. little bit of improvisation. It's just a really mm. short jab on the half volley. Where the natural thing to do, I think, would be open to open your body out and try and mm. side foot it into the corner. But he take he just hits it and takes it early. It's like Bruce Lee's one inch punch or something. <laughs> jabs it, and again, it's uh, uh, similar to uh, the previous night. I don't think Zenga's set yet, so it just trickles by him. It reminds me a lot of um, the Brazilian Ronaldo used to do this a lot: shoot early before the keeper he made so many keepers look foolish by doing that shooter as well um, yeah Batistuta as well Romario off off the toes um you know through defenders legs those kind of things so it's um yeah it's a lovely finish and that yeah uh, Rob said the interception that gets it going and then it's it's yeah it's, it's just so rhythmic like after after you know not really doing that much in the game Mm. Beforehand, the USSR. All, all of a sudden, everything just clicks into place, and, and they just cut right through it all. Apologies to listeners who've heard me going on about this before, but it, 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 it really does strike me watching the USSR, watching Mikhailichenko in particular in this tournament, be such a presence in the middle of the park. Not a lot of pace, um, but such calm, composed control, um, and obviously with 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 my blue specs on and he came to play for Rangers a few years after he went to Sampdoria of course um, comes to British football and what do you do with a gifted technically flair player you punt them out onto the left wing because that's maybe where we don't have too many of that that's where flair goes we don't really trust you in the middle of this this engine room go back to the English wars Rob and just this lack of trust in maybe a wee bit slower players are not going to absolutely get thudded into tackles, but have vision, um, have execution and a range of passing, and it just doesn't get rewarded in late 80s, early 90s British football. Um, again, with the Rangers out on a few years later, Trevor Stephen wants to play in the middle of the park, and Graham Sinnis, who knows a thing or two about playing in the middle of the park, can't trust him with that. He has to bring in Nigel Spackman um, to, to, to kind of Fill that 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 gap in the middle when when Ray Wilkins leaves. There's just this. This is a continental thing. This is something that the these these types do. These foreign types with their the cheating and their expert passing. Um, we we need we need 100 miles an hour or very brave, unless you're Paul Gascoigne or someone just completely undroppable, untouchable. Um, it's this it's lack of trust the technique in the where where tackles are supposed to go. I suppose. The interesting exception to that is probably Jan Mulby at Liverpool, mm. who had a good few years. But I completely agree with you. We've spoken about Hoddle in every episode, it feels like. And you're right. Um, but you look at the, the US side midfield, it's just ball players, really. Elenikov yeah. was busy and tackling, but he could, he's essentially could yeah. play. Zavarov, absolutely. Mikhailichenko, 
it's almost a revelation in this tournament actually because yeah. yeah he didn't my memory of him is um more at Sampdoria than Rangers actually and he was crap at Sampdoria um but yeah I just thought he was, he was fantastic uh scored a lovely goal against England but you're right just someone who's just so calm and there, there is I think Mike said about the whole rhythmic nature of the goal and there's some bits in this game like it's not an amazing performance and it's not an amazing game but there are times when you look at it and it is there's a, just a lovely hypnotic quality to their play in midfield and also the flexibility of, of those three plus Litovchenko I, I love um I love how flexible it was then we kind of in my head the formations would be a lot more rigid but that hasn't been the case at all um so literally obviously have to then do something Mike and they're, they're stung two minutes later I mean this game's over uh, if the first goal was a lovely finish then Protosov's goal to make it 2-0 was lovelier um and yeah, you know, game done. And and this is what the USSR just appear to be doing. They're so so clinical. They don't waste the ball particularly. It's not a um, hump it and see. Um, when when they break, when they, they move forward, it's 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 with kind of precision. There's, there's a real purpose to this team. And again, if you're watching that at home on that Wednesday night, you have to be fancying them as as, as favourites now to go in and going to win. They look like a tournament team that is just mature. Um, the right age, possibly the right kind of mix, and and just ready to to, to go and grab it. Yeah, I think mature is a good word, actually. Um, this is obviously a side that's, uh, you know, very used to playing with each other. Um, the the clinical nature of the, the second goal, again, again, it's just so incisive. They just cut right through Italy. Um, there's a saying called sunning off, where, you know... <laughs> It's like a dad in the back garden, you know. Oh, you, yeah, you've had your fun now, and I'm just, I'm going to go up the other end and and finish the game. And yeah, that felt like that's what they were doing here. And so it's a very quick double hit, and it just it it, it takes the wind right out of Italy. Really, I mean, they're, they're never they're never going to win the game from there. Uh, yeah, very clinical performance from the USSR, and, and effectively seals their fourth final. And this is what the eighth European Championship. Mm. That's an incredible record, and it's it's so weird the way it juxtaposes with their World Cup record, which is you know really I think like one semi final um, was all they ever managed. But um, yeah, does that the, play into, did, did, can it play into a tournament preparation, tournament football? It, it is it, it is an organism of its own. But if you know we do well here, this is something that we we, yeah. we have a record, then we feel at home here. That's the bogey tournament. That that's the thing we can't break, or that's the team we can't break down. Um, surely that's talked about in in um, and and it's it, it, listen. I think Euro eighty eight. We'll maybe talk about this a bit more next week. That we're starting to just walk, go into this new world of um, coverage, full coverage, really, really expansive coverage. Maybe the the light isn't shone on this tournament at this time, and and maybe there's there's maybe just a little bit of, of pressure off. But they they must feel comfortable that 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 must be something that, that's talked about. Mm. No, I think it is. I think these things matter absolutely, even if it's just subconscious. Um, I remember discussing this once about um, how Arsene Wenger's Arsenal teams all had a similar ability to go on either crazy winning runs or just to blow up completely. And they said, but that's ridiculous. It's like 15 years. What's this got to do with the first team? But I absolutely think stuff like that resonates through generations. Definitely. I'm not, I'm, I don't think it's a huge thing, but it can be. Um, and I certainly think it has an impact. Yeah. I don't know if you agree, Mike. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, you, you don't have to agree it's okay. <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't expecting that. You sounded really reluctant then, like yeah. when Ben Stokes told Harry Brookie's back at number three. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I do, I do think, yeah, it, it does kind of resonate. And I, th- I think you can build up a reputation in a tournament. You know, I've, I've seen this with loads of teams, particularly in the World Cup, I think. Um, mm. You know, the amount of times you've seen a, a traditional superpower at the World Cup, someone that's won it before, be in a compromised position, you know, like Brazil or Italy or something. I remember like Italy going down to 10 against Australia in 2006. Um, you know, I've seen it with Brazil before as well. Uh, they they went down to 10 against the USA uh, in 1994. They still won the game. I mean, you know, it's just uh, that matters. Not not mm. just for not just for um, the the teams who who have that in their history, but the teams playing them as well. It's exactly. like you. Know, so you're not just put, you're not just playing the eleven. You're you're playing what the eleven represents, and you know what that country represents in the history of the tournament. It is a, it is a big thing because I think there's there's such a there's such a focus on these events. It's it's so different from club football, I think, because these things are played in isolation. You know, over a summer with the the entire uh, eyes of the, either the continent or the world, depending on whatever tournament you're playing. And there's such a focus on it that it just that kind of stuff just does seep through. Because it is just it's just around you all the time. I think it comes up in every press conference. Managers mention it. You know, there's former players everywhere. There's just reminders of that history mm. all around you. Yeah, one thing I was going to say about this game as well. It reminds me so much of the semi-final in 2016 between Portugal and Wales. Um, but first half, really quiet. Everything going okay. Then suddenly, bang, bang. Good night. It goes from nil nil to two nil in three minutes. But because it's USSR as well, it's pretty much no, don't they? Um, and that must be so strange. I suppose the difference is for Wales, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Italy think they're going to have yeah. a bigger one, and they will have a bigger one in they two years' it, time. Yeah. But I, yeah, I always find those games really interesting where it's just cagey, we're comfortable, we're not doing much, we're comfortable, and then it's gone. It's just over in, like, in a flash. Um, yeah. And they, yeah. They didn't have much. Viali missed one more chance towards the end. Yeah, of a, a slightly awkward chance, but... Um, they didn't have a lot, did they? They tried the usual substitution, only two subs in. So Diagostini came on, but yeah, USSR just saw out really comfortably. Yeah, and, and I this... think they'd already... Sorry, Martin. Oh, they'd, already... They'd, they'd already put Altabelli on at half-time. Mm. I think that they put him on for Mancini, didn't they? So it's not even like you can go to three forwards either. Yeah. It's, no, they five... played one of their cards. Yeah, five. And so. they had five to choose from, never mind. And mm. you can only... So you're right. You're absolutely right. They couldn't, like... I don't think they would have had any other. It's not like the Netherlands who... End up with four forwards against um, Ireland. Uh, yeah, Italy didn't have that opportunity. Strange game, wasn't it? Like almost nothing happens in it really. Um, but but I think some players said the rain really affected the pitch, um, made it really heavy and so on. Um, yeah, who knows? But I suppose um, I mean, you were asking at the start of this who's favourite. It, it would be really interesting to look into. I haven't looked at the final because you just are very impressive in this one. The only team who's Indeed. given a scare is Ireland, really. Yeah. Um, Netherlands played okay and they were stung a bit. England were obviously stripped naked and they're just very comfortable. Yeah, they did. They they're very comfortable. Good. We said this in the first group game when they did play the Netherlands. They're mm. comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Waiting. They're mm. comfortable sitting and they will they will be clinical and. 1988 stereotypes in the Western world, this must play into every single one of them that they are 
ruthlessly clinical, cold. Um, there's no passion about it. They will just, they're very strong. It's one thing that Italy did say. So, you know, a technically good team, uh, but with, with, with the weather on the pitch, they were just stronger than we were. They were just bigger than we were. And there's this, you know, if he dies, he dies. Um, <laughs> kind of, ah. of, of, of cliche that, that, that would have been right. In, in, in 1988, Rob. And, and talking about cliches, the Netherlands celebrated by going to a nightclub and probably getting pissed. The USSR went on a shopping trip the next day with a yeah. per diem of 19 quid each. <laughs> what the hell? It's brilliant, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's almost so, like two different worlds, Rob. Yeah. And it's kind of, this is the last great Soviet side, isn't it? Or not great, yeah. the last very good. I'm trying to think of any of the teams since or of any Europe had quite the same quality. And I don't think they have, partly because of the nature of the team, all the players from Kiev. But also because we just know so much more, um, so there was a, like just a fascinating mystery to them. Um, even though we were a bit familiar from '86, there were still new players like Lizovchenko. I think Kuznetsov would be new, um, and we'd see Nancy in between. So yeah, they were a fascinating team. I'd be interested to see his favourites. I genuinely don't know who's favourite. Yeah, we'll have a look at that. For, we'll try and look at that for next week. Still no smile from Lobanovsky, despite being unbeaten and in um, in that, that that final. Do we? And again, I know I know this is a difficult question to answer because we know the outcome and the the the, the images of that. Do we have the right final? I would say, I would say we don't. I think West Germany USSR would have been. The strongest final, personally, but that—that's marginal, of course. Um, it's interesting. I, I think certainly before the semi-finals, the final a lot of English press, the English press wanted was Netherlands v Italy. Actually, mm. um, I th I think we probably do because I think although West Germany improved, I don't, I still don't think they were that good. And I, and I agree, Netherlands haven't been that convincing in any game really um but i yeah i think probably yes and one thing i would say i always like finals where uh there's been a meeting earlier in the tournament yeah 54 is 54 world cup finals the obvious one but that adds a nice element to it as well i just it's really interesting because the, this west german team would become something absolutely fantastic i thought they were brilliant and underrated world champions but at this point in time I don't know. I think, I, I, to be honest, though, I don't think there's a huge amount between the, the four or indeed Ireland. I think the five best teams in the tournament, there wasn't a huge amount between them. Um, Definitely but, the four best semi-finals. Or the four semi-finals were the four best yeah, team for sure. Ireland were the only team who could have a case, I think. Mainly on the grounds that they should have beaten the Soviet Union and should have beaten quite handily, actually. Yeah. But yes, I think they are the best, the best four. So. I just wonder, I, I, I have seen this before, but I've never seen it in the detail that I have, Mike, preparing for this series and I guess I just felt a bit deflated, a bit disappointed in, in, in the Netherlands in particular and I wonder if the Van Basten that I grew up loving, the Hulot that I grew up loving, the Koeman that I grew up loving the Rijkaard were the players that played for, for Milan and Barcelona and it's it's their club exploits that, that, that really and I know what's going to happen in the final and of course that that is burned on the the the, the memory um but i don't think they go anywhere near that 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 level of, of sparkle and performance consistently anyway and i wonder just that back projection it's van basten is going to go and be incredible at milan for example after this summer um and and maybe 
maybe I'm looking or I started watching this with 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 those memories already, you know, very deep and 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 those impressions of those players. They're not those players yet, as I, I suppose is what I'm getting at. In the way that Matthias and Voller and Klinsman and and Andy Bremer, um, I think probably are. Maybe West Germany's weaker players are are weaker than the Dutch's weaker players. But I hope that that kind of makes sense. I was just a wee bit deflated watching. Yeah, I, th- I think we do look back on that team. Now. I mean, having having watched a lot of their games back now from that tournament, I th- you know, what I m- mentioned earlier about them being a team of moments, um, they, they, they are this. They've got just got these incredible individuals in the team. I think at the end of this year, um, Van Basten, Hoyt and Rijkaard were the top three in the Ballon d'Or voting. And I think mm. Ronald Koeman was fifth. Um, you know, Koeman goes on to play in the Dream Team. Uh, the three Milan players, one one of the greatest club sides of all time. So I, I do get I get what you say about this kind of back projection. I think there is a bit of a romanticisation of about how they how well they played um, in Euro '88. It skims over a bit, you know how you know, you know they they kind of rode their luck um, at several points, but but they do have those kind of they're not one of the best teams that's ever won it, but they're one of the most iconic. I think just mm. because of who's involved because of the kit and I just think the story that's woven in that semi I'm not I'm not saying the, the final's not an afterthought, of course it's not. It's got those two amazing goals in it. But the story of that um semi final, I just think is so powerful. And then it teed up what what I think actually defines this Dutch team is their rivalry with West Germany in that era. Mm. I don't think they're particularly defined by winning the Euros. Obviously that's that's a huge thing. But you just think about them, they keep running into West Germany and then Germany in tournaments. And it's that tip for tap back and forth. I don't think we've seen a rivalry quite like that in international football since. Which is maybe colouring my thoughts. Sorry, Rob, we'll come to you in a minute. Mm-hmm. That the German trio or quartet of those famous players, they come out better. Germany wins more, they win bigger prizes and... Um, They'll go and win Euro Night Six, of course, as well, and um, they'll they'll win club things as well. But but the 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 Dutch guys again are are more, I think, more famous, more renowned, playing their best stuff for their clubs, and I think that's maybe where they shown rather than in particular with the final, which we'll come to next week, of course, Rob. Mm. Yeah, I, I would disagree with that. I, what I would say, I think, from watching this tournament, I mean, Hull, it's an interesting one. So he goes into the tournament as the Ballon d'Or holder. Best player in the world, arguably, along with Maradona. But even the Times are saying, I think it's either before or after the semi-final, arguably, arguably the biggest disappointment in the tournament. He has a good final, so that kind of redeems it partially. I um, I thought Van Basten did look really sharp, though, mm. particularly against England and West Germany. Obviously, the yeah. goal is at the moment. But I thought Kohler like, is a serious defender and was even then. Van Basten gives him a pretty torrid time, and he was even better against England. Um as for the football, I agree with you. And I think they arguably play better football at Euro 92, which is kind of a forgotten team, really. Yeah. And they battered Germany in that tournament. It was 3-1 yeah. and they play. I remember Van Basten hitting the bar with a volley from 20 yards after about a 25-pass move. Never mind, there's a beautiful third goal scored by Vinter, I think. Mm. Um, so they arguably yeah. actually play more exciting football. But you're right, ultimately, you know, victory allows people to write their own history and that's fair enough um, and it's not they were a bad team by any means they just no no um, no luck is a huge part of winning any tournament it Even, is indeed. It, and i mean yeah there are very few teams who haven't had luck along the way and actually it's interesting what mike says about moments um great moments from great players but also the luck came 
at really important moments, timing of the Keith goal, um, when England hit the post, when obviously the penalty was given uh, against Germ- West Germany. So yeah, um, you kind of it kind of almost makes you believe in fate, stuff like that. Mm. And it's important, I think, of doing shows and series like this that you can mm. years yeah, after um, perhaps yeah. um, add a wee bit more colour, a wee bit more nuance to to the myth, to the legend, and to the to, to the iconography. Anyway. A quiz question for you both. Hullet was Ballon d'Or winner in 1987. Who was the runner-up? One guess each. 87. Mm. So 80, 1987, so it would have been awarded in like December or January 98. No, 88. I, I didn't notice either. I only just checked. It was during the, the interregnum of, of big glamorous clubs winning the European Cup, so that that, that doesn't that doesn't really give I'll me number three. Start, uh, number three was Butcher Grano, who also had a shit tournament. It's not Lineker, is it? Was that it was the year before, right? No. 96. Okay. I think who won who? the European Cup? It was Palo Futre. Porto won really? it. Really? Purely no. because of the age, and not far behind either, according to Wikipedia, according to Wikipedia. Um 106 points, Hullet, 91 foot tray, 61. Mm. Um, Michel. Interestingly, and I'm only just looking at this now, Lineker is fifth, actually. Michel is fourth. Mm. Barnes is joint sixth for Van Basten. I was going to ask you about John Barnes. But that Again, that's based only on a half a season at Liverpool, yeah. albeit an astonishing half mm. season. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. One thing I was, I was going to say about the, um, the Soviet Union, actually, that whole, like, you know, automaton red machine thing. Um, and I think that they scored six goals in this, and they're scored by five players. In what in what UEFA count as their team of the tournament for this, the one on their website, there's no Soviet players in it at all, and they, they got to the. Um, that's interesting. That sums up the yes, final. They're, they're all the same, aren't they? They all play the yeah, same. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Exactly, and actually, um, although they go, although they do go on to lose the final, and the Soviet Union, they go on and win the Olympics in Seoul. Um, in the September, I think Mikhailichenko plays in that. I think he's the only one from this squad that plays in it. But they beat a Brazil team in the final that had uh, Romario, Bebeto, Tafarel, Jorginho. Um, you know, Brazil title because they mm. they still hadn't won the Olympics at that point, so they were taking it really seriously. So it's um, yeah, quite a summer for them across the board. Kind of little this is a point in its own, and. I'm very conscious that we're coming to the end of this one, but it's a good point though, Mike, and, and, and Rob, you're talking about the Ballon d'Or and Paolo Futra being there, almost as if individual awards in a team sport are meaningless <laughs> and they just they just look at the big games, who played well in the big games and and, and give them the, 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 the points. But again, we're going to talk about it next week. Um, you're wanting big performances and big moments, of course, but then to define a whole year, well, that, that, that's obviously something uh, a, a wee bit different. And yes, that Soviet team um, with Goal scorer after goal scorer, pick you know, stepping up, doing their bit every as a team. This is a team sport, um, but perhaps the cult of the individual is, is nothing new, and we've been obsessed with that since people were looking for Tom Finney and Stanley Matthews hmm. you know, um, uh, cards and their, their, their cigarette pack. It, it, it's it's that interest. I find it fascinating anyway. That dynamic between the individual and what is a team game can't do it all themselves, but yet we we we. We probably venerate that enough because they're they're living our dreams and and and, and maybe that's that's that that kind of projection. Mm. We should look yeah, at the Ballon d'Or 
Uh, so just we should, I, I won't I won't spoil it. We should look at the Ballon d'Or eighty eight next week because fuck me, there's some interesting uh, mm. names on there. Um, but yeah, it sort of reinforces what you say. There was only one Soviet player in the top uh, seven. Um, anyway, I'll leave that for next week. Sorry, I've got that a rabbit hole. Yeah, I remember um, on one of those match of the day uh, podcasts that they did. You know, remember they were doing like one every day, pretty much through lockdown, mm. where they were just where everyone had to talk about old football because there was no actual football happening. People putting tanks on our lawn, which I thought was a, <laughs> a bit cheeky. But um, yeah, I remember Lineker being like absolutely perplexed that he lost the 86 Ballon d'Or to Belenov. And he's like, well, what did he do? And so, because Lineker won the golden boot, obviously, mm. but Belenov scored four at that World Cup. He scored a hat-trick at that World Cup as well. And he'd won the Cup Winners' Cup. But mm. <laughs> just couldn't get his. But I won the golden boot. He couldn't, yeah. you know, with six goals from inside the six yard box. But ergo, yeah. this that that, that that transfers to to, to that award. Um, mm. Good to see nothing's changed in all that time. Listen, gents, it's been a, a, an absolute pleasure um, discussing these semi-finals and a lot more besides with you as we always do on the show. Um, thank you, Mike. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you, Rob. Cheers, lads. That was great fun. And yes, the most impressive team were steamrolling their way into the final. The Dutch had their moments, as Mike said, they would have to have some in the final to get through. Two in particular. Until next time. Bye for now.